Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss scientific principles for optimising human performance. My name is Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Carla Mai-Jen, a lecturer and researcher in sports psychology from St. Mary's University. Now, I've always been really impressed with the elite performers, you know, the best of the best on their psychological resilience. It seems that no matter what obstacles are thrown at them in the race or in their preparation for the race, they still have this ability to focus on the main goal and not talk themselves out of winning. Well, in this episode, Carla and myself discuss different self-talk strategies, which you can use during races, the main psychological determinants of endurance performance, and how having different goals will allow you to move between different race strategies when the unexpected occurs. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube, head to our website, theprogresstheory.com, and check out all of our other episodes. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors, because without them, this podcast would not be possible. I wanted to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of The Progress Theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me, and edited and mixed all of the video, audio, and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex, perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. 
You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Lerney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting the progress theory. If you want a 10% discount on all Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of The Progress Theory or my personal Instagram account at Dr. Phil Price or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. Here is Dr. Carla Mygen. Hey Carla, how are you? Very well, Phil. Thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Thank you so much for coming on to The Progress Theory. Especially when I think of endurance performance, obviously my area is more like biomechanics, a bit more physiology. But one of the questions a lot of people seem to come to their minds when they think of endurance performance is their, the psychological constraints. So I've always remembered certain athletes, you have certain performances and there's aspects where they're like, oh, I didn't achieve what I wanted to there. I'm all my training was great physiologically and biomechanically. I felt like I was at my peak, but there was something lacking. Uh, and I think it's always that last bit, that psychological edge, which seems to be the thing that determines if people really succeed and actually miss out on their potential. So obviously that is your area. So I was you know, really interested to, to speak to you about this. Yes, yeah, I think it's really important when we think about any sports performance to realize that, you know, there's different qualities that go into that. So she's saying you've got the the technical, the tactical the physiological, you've got the physical, so the strength, as well as the psychological. And we also should remember you've got kind of the environment around it. So all the, the people mm. and support stuff that, that might feed into that. And I think sometimes we overlook that it's all these things that make up like a really good and solid uh, sport performance, whichever area or sport you're thinking about. But then when we're thinking about the, the kind of things through my research and experiences working with a range of endurance athletes that are quite typical to endurance, I tend to come back to kind of four of the same uh, things. So the first one is motivation. Mm. So when we think about endurance performance, well, it's in the word, isn't it? It's the duration, it takes time. And so you can't cheat on your training. You can be clever in your training, but you need to put in the miles, the hours, and so on. So what you find is that sometimes it might get a bit boring or you might kind of lose that motivation. So it's kind of going back to the quality of the motivation, really understanding why you're doing what you're doing. So it, you don't kind of get into that boredom phase that much because you have a good sound reason for doing what you're doing. Um, then there's mm. the component of pacing, which is obviously very unique to endurance because you never kind of tend to go in that kind of 90%, but you, you kind of stick at that 80% of your max effort, isn't it? So there's a lot of mm. time to, to think about when do I speed up? When do I slow down? How do I get to the finish line knowing I've given it all? So that component of pacing is so unique to endurance. And then there's also the duration itself. So there's a lot of time to think. So when I think about a marathon, for example, it's often aligned to like this emotional roller coaster because you might start great, then, you know, it drops. You think, what am I doing here? You're going back up. And then you have that elation at the, at the end. And there's so many things that are going on in your, in your mind to have that time to think. So you can talk yourself into an event, but you can very much talk yourself out of it as well. Mm. And then there's the, the pain. And I think this is very unique to endurance performances. You know it's going to hurt. Yet you make that decision to expose yourself to pain. So it's that volitional aspect of pain. You're no that it's going to hurt, yet you're going out and do that. So those four components, motivation, the pacing, the volitional aspect of pain and discomfort, 
as well as kind of the, the time you have to think are kind of four aspects from a psychological perspective that are quite unique to endurance performance. Okay. Would you say they are the four main determinants of psychological performance in endurance? Like if you've taken all of your research and there's probably a lot, of, like you said, there's a lot of different things that can affect your psychological performance in an, a particular event, but those four are like the main ones. I think those are the four that are quite unique to endurance performance. Obviously, there's a lot of other things that come into Mm. it. So you've got self-efficacy, things like how do you manage those kind of thoughts in your mind, mental fatigue, uh, motivation are all types of things that, you know, are required when you think about endurance performance and bounce back ability, adaptability within events, that kind of ability to resist the you know, the urge to stop and slow down beyond what was planned, that pacing, those are all things that are feeding into when we think about what makes a good endurance performance. If I think about motivation, why is that such a big component? Because there's got to be motivation to perform well on the day if it's like an event, but there's also the motivation to maintain the amount of training that you have to do. I mean, we are recording this in January where the weather is horrible and People often use this time because it's kind of like the off-season for running. If we use running as an example, people are putting in those slow, long-duration type training uh, sessions, especially during the weekends. I guess motivation needs to be high to make you want to do those sessions because they're not going to be fun. They, they kind of play into the whole you know, time as such an issue. How could we improve our motivation to improve our performance and endurance both from a training aspect and a performance aspect yeah i think what's important is to to kind of take a step back and understand what motivation is so it's you know a drive to want to do something and it's not just about the quality of motivation which is what you've just talked about you know your high motivation so that's sorry the quantity of motivation but it's very much about the quality of motivation so you can have a lot of motivation but the quality of that motivation might not be very high. You might be doing something for not necessarily the best of reasons, or it's you doing something for someone else rather than for yourself. So when we're talking about the quality of motivation, it's it's quality, it's kind of motivation that comes from you. It's it's autonomous motivation, we call that, rather than controlled motivation. So you're not driven by things like well, if I don't do this, I feel guilty, which is actually quite a controlled type of motivation and not particularly helpful because you're not necessarily doing it because of enjoyment. So what we really want to work towards is, of course, high levels of motivation, but high levels of good quality motivation where you understand your reasons for doing something and that those reasons for doing something come from you and not from doing it for external reasons, doing it because you want to compare yourself to others on Strava and Mm -hmm. like it's supposed to be an easy run, but because one of your mates on Strava did this particular split time, you then suddenly forget that you were going to do this easy run and you you kind of want to show that you are at the same standard as that person. Obviously, that's very controlled and not necessarily high levels of of kind of motivation. So it's taking that step back, reflecting on what are your reasons for doing something. And if you are, let's say, training for, you know, London Marathon, I think it might be back in April this year. Not quite sure when <laughs> when the timings are for the coming year. But you might be training for that and you might be training for a particular time, but also very process oriented in terms of gaining strength, understanding your pacing better then obviously it makes it much easier to then stick to those training sessions because you understand your reason for doing that and that's something that you control rather than other people. 
Yeah, there's definitely a few motivational factors that I think a lot of people can resonate with, especially the guilt one. Oh, I've got to do this because if I don't, I will feel guilty. And I hate that feeling of guilt. Like I really don't want that. So I will do that. (laughs) And especially with social media, the whole, you know, was it comparison is the thief of joy. Oh, I'm just going to do this because, or I do this at a certain level because I don't want this person looking like they're better than me or anything like that. There, there does seem to be like like you, you described quality motivation and I'd say if I use my own endurance performance as an example my quality of motivation can be good at times but it can really slip back into that bad quality w- what kind of tips would you recommend say for me who oh I keep slipping back into that bad quality type motivation I'll get the training done but it's not necessarily that helpful. How can I maintain my high level of motivational quality? I think what's quite helpful is to set a goal for each training session. So think about what you're trying to achieve at a training session. So perhaps the training session is focused on fit positioning. When it's a bit slippery outside, you might kind of change your your footing. And it might be that you're actually focusing on that. So you're starting to become very process-oriented and that kind of takes your thoughts away from, you know, these comparisons to others. So have a very clear goal in mind for those different sessions. And that makes it so much more enjoyable rather than just slugging it out because you just want to tick that box. So that might be something that you can have conversations with people around you. For some people, it's it's just running with someone else to get them out of that drag might be something that's quite enjoyable. Others hate running with others. So it depends on, on what works best for you. So it's really helpful to think back, okay, what do I want to achieve? How am I going to achieve that? And what do you think I can enjoy and take away from this session? So if it's a boring session, surely there must be some reason for you to do it that can make it enjoyable. So it might be that if it's um, one of those very long, slow runs, perhaps find an environment where it's enjoyable to be in that environment. Perhaps what you can do is if you know that some of your mental aspects are needing a little bit of work, you can practice some mental techniques throughout. So When you think about those different qualities, what makes a good sports performance, like the tactical, technical, physical, physiological, psychological aspects, see if you can set a goal for those and use those for those runs that you might, or long cycle rides, long swims, uh, that you might struggle with a bit. Now, that makes a lot of sense. Is that something that will work for you? (laughs) I, I think it would, and probably something I need to be better at doing. So, for example, if I'm working as a as a coach, I'm quite often making sure that each, I don't know, part of a session or a whole session has a particular aim. Uh, and that aim sometimes might be based upon objective data. It might be a certain pace they have to hit or a certain weight they have to lift. But it doesn't always have to be that. It could be how it felt. It could be, like you said, a certain cue, focus on this, and then all of a sudden they're distracted. People often so focus on, sometimes, this is a really good idea to have data to provide the the goals of the session, but sometimes it might be better just to focus on other subjective measures, and that also shows progression. And that kind of adds up, maybe we should be using more of those, and that leads into developing better motivational quality like you've described. Definitely. You think about, you, you talked about guilt, and like some of these emotional states aren't always that helpful, right? Where you feel frustrated because maybe you feel really tired, you had a bad night of sleep, and it's just you go out into that session with such a unhelpful mindset you already think this is just a tick box exercise what am I going to get out of this I'm not going to enjoy it and I'm sure there's quite a few listeners that 
will have experienced that. So it's about how can you then shift that and, you know, set a goal perhaps that um, you're going to practice getting yourself into a different mindset. So how can you then change that negativity or those negative emotions to, hey, maybe I'm going to try find some excitement in this session, in this training session. What can I do to get to that? So then you're training your your mindset. So you're not just focusing on the physical nature of your session, but also on that. And then you can take that into events. And especially, you know, that transition from training to events is so important, isn't it? So when you're going into an event with that negative mindset, how can you then shift that into something that's a bit more positive, like a challenge? Mm. Yeah, that does make a make a lot of sense. And it seems to make a lot of sense to try and improve the other aspect you described, which is pacing to maintain a certain pace especially if you're doing a particular event or it's a race that pace is going to be higher or it's going to be at competition level so it's going to be harder to maintain that pace and you've always got that voice in the back of your head either it's pushing you along or it's I guess this goes to positive and negative self-talk I'm guessing or it can cause you to slow down I can't do this (laughs) is that quite common within endurance sports the positive and negative self-talk which can have such a huge effect on endurance performance yeah definitely with a a group of endurance researchers in the uk we uh, kind of worked on a project called resist so kind of how do you manage that voice in your head that tells you to slow down or stop beyond what you've kind of planned as term in terms of your pacing and it's something so we did a survey and we asked runners in this instance, I think we had like around six, seven hundred respondents, whether they've experienced that urge to stop or slow down. And I think it was like about 97%, between 95 and 97% of respondents said that they've experienced that. And we had some comments that someone said, well, if you haven't experienced that, you're lying, which is quite an interesting comment, to be honest. Um, (laughs) But, you know, a lot of people have felt that and some can resist that. Um, and others give in to that voice. So it's about what techniques can you kind of use to help you resist those thoughts around that urge to stop or slow down. Do you think that 3% were lying? Or are they just, are they the 3% which hit those top levels that everyone else is trying to achieve? It's, well, I can't look into into their into their brain, their thoughts. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, you know, like if you, for example, if you never really go above a certain uh, percentage of your max, then you may never experience that. So let's say you're always going for, for a slow run, kind of that's, that's far below what you're capable of. Because, you know, maybe that's what you want to do. That's what you enjoy. Maybe those thoughts never appear in your mind. But I, arguably, if you're going at that really, really high level, your legs feel like lead and you know you are sat like you feel like you're running into in quicksand or something or mud or you know on the beach you probably might have those thoughts but it's about are you giving into those or are you managing to resist them yeah so is it more about not trying to remove those thoughts it's just trying to ignore them or use them positively when they do come about yeah, it's about understanding that they might might be there. If they're going to be there, then, you know, it's about understanding when in an event or a training session they might pop up and what can you then do to manage that. What we found, so we, we asked the, the kind of respondents about, you know, what are the types of things that you did and was that then something that helped you to manage that or did you then give in to that? And we actually found that acceptance often kind of resulted in 
giving in to those thoughts. So slowing down or maybe temporarily walking, which is, you know, if, the, if that works for you, that's okay. But if your aim is to resist that in kind of a responsible manner, not kind of hurting yourself, injuring yourself, then things like attention strategies, adjusting pace in a way that's, that, that works for you, uh, self-talk to help you focus on the process is really helpful. So it might be that you're then focusing on your technique, maybe your running stride, or head up, looking forward. It might be that you set different goals and that you are able to adjust your, your goals. So one of the things that we've done as part of the, the Resist Working Group, we kind of have to have the kind of a set of strategies people might be able to use. So in terms of goal setting, what's a quite a nice way of looking at it is that you have a, a kind of a gold dream goal if everything's going well on the day that's the goal you're aiming for you might have a, a silver goal or like an, a happy goal things are going all right so that's the goal you might be aiming for and then you have your kind of like your okay or your bronze goal so things are quite crap on the day maybe the weather is not in your favor you didn't sleep well you didn't eat well it just feel tired for example then that's a goal you might be going for so rather than kind of giving into the thoughts you can switch or jump in between those kind of levels of goals, if you like. Mm. But it also means that maybe you didn't feel as well at the start, but actually you're setting off and it's going well. So then you can move up a goal, if you like. You can go to that dream goal and get that kind of satisfaction out of the event or the training session. I think that's quite a, a nice way of looking at that. So not just... Because often what people have is a do or die goal. So they have like, oh, I want to set this particular time or I want to achieve this particular goal. And then if things don't go according to plan, they just give up because they're so far removed from that goal that they just let go. Whereas actually, if you've already thought about a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, it's much easier to keep going because you've already accepted that there's another goal that you can move towards, but also that if things then pick up again, you can move back to the higher goals, if you like. It sounds very much that goals provide the firm foundation of self-talk or strategies while trying to deal with pacing issues. So without the different levels of goals, you, you don't have the ability to, if something's going well or something's going wrong during a race, you don't have that ability to change your mindset because you haven't got the foundation that's provided by your range of goals? Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. I think some goal flexibility is definitely helpful, kind of do or die mm. goals. I mean, we've had a big discussion around this with one of the kind of members of the Resist team who said, well, that's my do or die goal and who is, is kind of a very competitive runner himself. And he's like, mm. well, I'm going to slack if I'm going to go to my bronze or my silver or my happy or my okay goal. He says, I'd rather quit than aiming for something else. Whereas that then means that you're giving in to those thoughts and rather than um, think about, okay, well, there's actually other ways of finishing this event that may be not the time that I was hoping for or aiming for, but there's other things that I have gotten out of this event that I can then take with me to future events. And um, I'm going on a bit of a sidestep there, but that's where self-regulation is really important. So there's three phases of kind of self-regulated learning. So that's kind of your planning phase. So your kind of forethought phase where you kind of think about, okay, what's my confidence level, uh, my planning and so on. And then you're going into kind of the action phase. So the performance phase, you're acting. And then you've got the reflection phase, which is really important, but often forgotten about, where you kind of reflect on mm. what's happened. And that will then feed into your confidence and your self-efficacy going into subsequent events. So you're constantly learning kind of if 
things aren't necessarily going that well in that day, you can still learn a lot from the events that feeds into future events. And I think sometimes we overlook that and therefore we stop enjoying it or we kind of lose that motivation because we're constantly so outcome focused that we forget about the process. And it's actually the process that we learn most from. I'm quite interested to know more about the runners that are part of this Resist uh, program that you have. Do you have quite a a large range of levels of runners? Um, So... Basically, the Resist project comprises uh, seven different kind of researchers in the UK. So, oh, well, actually, Sam is in, in Italy now. So we've got Noel Brick, who's in uh, Ulster in Ireland, who's actually... So not all of us are kind of competitive runners, but he's a, he's a pretty decent runner. David Marchand, Edge Hill, Alison McCormick at Plymouth Marchand, Samuel McCora, Dominic Micklewright, who's at Essex, and then there's Andy, Andy Lane at Wolverhampton, who, who are kind of... And, and then myself make up the Resist group kind of trying to bring together all these different psychological demands and techniques that can help with that oh cool where can people find the the work of the resist group because it sounds like especially the your what you described the reflection the action and the the planning or the three stages that looks something that would be very attractive to a lot of endurance performers where can uh, people access this work and try it themselves yeah so alistair um Myself and some other colleagues have written a paper on self-regulated or self-regulation in endurance uh, performance. I can send you the link that you can put with this yeah, podcast. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Which is, which is published in the International uh, Review of Sport and Exercise Psychology. As part of the project, we also put uh, a website together, which is quite a complicated. We used to have a direct URL, but it's it's a bit of a different one now. So again, I'll, I'll send you that link and you can put Thank that you. On, on the podcast show. So we, we've put together these things and we're still working on some papers that we're looking to publish. So we have some under review at the moment and we are working on some others to, to be reviewed going forward. As you can imagine with seven people, uh, it's a lot of hmm. um, work to go in that. But yeah, and we've presented at some conferences. So on the website, there's, there's some information, some really nice kind of short uh, bits of information about all the different techniques that we propose people can use, such as self-talk, which I can I can talk about as well if you want me to. Yeah, certainly. Go, go. I think the self-talk would be really important and attractive to a lot of listeners that are trying to improve their endurance performance. Like, what can we do to improve our self-talk? Because I know we haven't really touched on it just yet, but there's things like the time, spent loads of time. How do you keep yourself going when you're, you know, running for two to three hours, as an example. And the other one, I guess, is pain. Like, how do you talk yourself through the discomfort that you feel during endurance performance? Like, um, self-talk, I think, is really important. So, yeah, any information you have on that, that would be great to hear. Yeah, so when we think about self-talk, there's typically, uh, when we think about the, the kind of literature, so we need to distinguish between those kind of spontaneous thoughts that go through our mind, that, that constant chatter, those are kind of thoughts when we think about self-talk, that's the pur- purposeful use of self-talk techniques to help you manage those thoughts. And there's kind of very simplistically said two types of self-talk. So we've got instructional self-talk and motivational self-talk. And although it's a bit artificial to kind of distinguish between those, and often we use them in combination, um, in essence, what instructional self-talk is about, it's kind of self-talk that we use to, for example take us to the process of running. So maybe you're talking yourself through the kind of techniques that you're using, keep your head up, 
straight posture, or maybe you're breathing. So it's very much instructional or maybe particular pacing strategy. So those are the types of kind of things that you might be saying to yourself. And then you also have motivational self-talk. So that's, you know, maybe you're feeling a little bit tired and you need that cheering up and you're telling yourself, come on, I can do this types of things. So that that's what kind of motivational um, self-talk is about. So what Alistair has worked on together with Antonis Hachikajadis is uh, what we call an impact approach. So impact stands for identify what you want to achieve, match yourself, talk to your needs, practice different cues with consistency, ascertain which cues work best for you, create specific self-talk plans, and then train those self-talk plans to perfection. So we talked about goals already. So that's kind of the first step is to identify the goal. What is it what you want to achieve? So perhaps your your goal is to run your own race and to not get carried away at the start. It's so easy at the start of an event to completely forget about your pacing plan and just go, which is not always that helpful. So maybe, you know, your goal is to to run your own race and that might might be then the first step. And then it's to match your self-talk to your needs. So find out which kind of self-talk statements are useful to help you to stick to your pacing plan. And then you want to practice those self-talk statements. So use those in those like different training sessions that you're going out to. And that might be, you know, an aim of that training session is to practice the self-talk to reflect on it, which one worked for you. So that's that a certain uh, what statements did I use? How easy was it to use that statement? How did I feel about it? Was it helpful? And then together you can then go on to creating your self-talk plan and then finally keep training that self-talk plan that you're then happy with. So together you then get to that impact approach, if you like. Now that sounds really, really good. Do you think people uh, or good coaches deliberately pro- program certain running sessions which they know that the athlete is going to struggle with in a deliberate attempt to try and get them to test these impact goals? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely helpful to um, you know have some challenging or kind of difficult sessions because another strategy that we talk about regularly as, as part of kind of the, the resist working group is what we call if-then planning or sometimes it's called implementation intentions in the literature. And it's about... Mm. preparing for eventualities or critical situations that might arise in an event and then already have a plan in place to manage that situation. So rather than when something happens, you have to think about, oh my goodness, how am I going to deal with this? You already have an idea in place. So that kind of helps to reduce that gap that typically might exist between all our good intentions and action. So make sure that actually our good intentions of, of dealing with those critical incidents, or critical situations, you already have that plan in place so you can spring into action straight away. You've practiced it. So there's that kind of automatic link between that already in place. And coaches can definitely help with that by mimicking some of those difficult situations in training where they can then practice those plans, those if-then plans. So if the weather is horrific and it's headwinds that I hadn't planned for and my pacing plan is just not working, then what I'll do, I'll scan my body, maybe figure out how much gas you've got left in the tank. Okay, now I'm going to slow down. I know that when I go around the corner, I can speed up again. So, or scan what the weather conditions is like. So what quite Hmm. often happens when we think about outdoor events is that sometimes you just don't realize what the weather conditions are or what the course, you know, if you haven't studied the course, um, it might feel a lot harder. So I'm originally from the Netherlands and we have a saying that's called false plot, which means fake. 
like evenness. So you think it's a very like service and there's no incline. So it's very flat. So fake flat, I guess is the best way of, of translating it. And you just think it's like very flat and then suddenly it feels a little bit hard and you don't realize there's actually a little incline because you're so focused on maybe internally that you forget to take into your surroundings. So it's really good to draw on different ways of focusing your attention to think about, okay, now I can speed up, now I can slow down. So that's something you can build into an if-then plan as well. Like if this feels really hard, okay, I'm going to take a step back and think about scan internally how my body feels, but also scan the external environment. Actually, I hadn't realized it was a lot more humid or a lot windier or a lot more inclined than I expected. So of course, I'm feeling a little bit tired. I now need to adjust my pacing plan and then I can readjust later on. Do you think this quality is one of the the key factors which makes the very elite the very elite? Because if I think of, if, I mean, I can apply this to a number of sports. They always have those athletes or those runners that were kind of maybe athletes. They were always really good, but when something happened, they just didn't quite achieve their full potential. And then you have these really elite people that win all the time. And no matter what happens during the race or during the event, they still find a way to get through. Do you think that ability to deal with any adverse situations that happen during an event just happen you know whether they've practiced the strategy of dealing with it or they just have this ability just to ignore the bad things and just keep pushing through do you think that is one of the key things that can make the very elite the very elite and that's also something that the sub elites should be striving for because I, I assume this is a very much an assumption but I hear a lot of athletes from a number of sports saying, oh, they're very good, but I've been working with a sports psychologist. And then all of a sudden they just level up. And I'm wondering, is this this one of the key factors which helps that level up? It's dealing with the adverse things that happen with sport because sport is chaotic. Yeah, I mean, definitely. When we think about kind of focus, it's really important to be in the moment and focusing on your task. So that's mm. one of the kind of key components of sports, right? Being able to very task-oriented, focus on the task and just be very process-oriented in the moment. And Nike had a nice slogan there that, that actually works really well, you know, just do it one. But what differentiates those who are good from the very, very good one is that ability to refocus. It's not realistic to think that you can focus 100% of the time on the right thing, but it's about recognizing and developing that awareness to understand when you lose that focus to then get back into that moment, into the here and now, focusing on the task at hand. Sometimes some sports psychologists call it bounce back ability or kind of just that ability to refocus is super important and to understand. And that's where that self-regulation comes back into as well, that reflection to understand, okay, well, this is where I lost focus. This is why I didn't manage to regain it. So in future situations, are going to implement some different techniques that will help me to refocus. And sometimes at the moment, it might be so chaotic that the technique is just to block everything out. Just get on with it. Sometimes you can draw on those different attentional styles. So you kind of scan your environment internally and kind of go through that as part of a routine and understand, okay, now it's wise to slow down. Now it's wise to speed up. You're very much aware of what's going on. And then back to that task focus. Sometimes your thoughts might not be 
with the actual event because she's so concerned about other people might do. So it might be like with a lot of, especially kind of middle distance events, people have such different, dramatically different pacing strategies. Some have a very quick start, others have a very quick finish. And if you get carried away because you don't really understand your opponents well enough by someone who had a really quick start and it completely throws you and you're not able to refocus, then that's not particularly helpful. Mm -hmm. Another way of looking at it is how can you if you kind of wait that that focus, you you kind of trying to control a lot of the uncontrollables rather than control the controllables, then that focus is gone as well. So that ability to refocus is is very, very much a key component of what makes for a, for, a, for an excellent performance. In terms of refocusing, do you notice any differences between those athletes? If we use running as the example, the ability to refocus when the event is very short, I don't know, let's say like a 1500 meters or even a 5k, it's technically quite short compared to someone doing like an ultra marathon. So the, the differences in the events are going to change how you refocus. Do you find there's actually quite a lot of differences between those two events or do you see that those ability to refocus are generally the same because just because you're running or is time such a big factor that it really changes the ability for someone to be able to refocus? I mean, time is definitely a big factor because when you think about the longer events, one of the key components there is nutrition, isn't it? Like making mm. sure you keep well fed and, and hydrated throughout. And if you get that wrong, it's really hard to, to refocus. And that's something you need to preempt rather than work when it's actually happened because I'm sure if, if you've experienced this but if you're going through those those very long events and you've got your nutrition wrong or you haven't paced well it can be quite hard to then get back to that refocus so that's where you want to preempt those situations and even though you might not be hungry you might not be thirsty from previous events and experiences you know actually at that mile point mileage point taking into consideration for example the the weather is very humid i need to hydrate now i need to feed now to help avoid that loss of focus later on you know misnavigation all those types of things are so common to happen when you know you don't get all of that right yeah certainly you really showed just how interconnected everything is so if we think about the long distance example your ability to uh, recenter or your ability to have different strategies will be affected by your nutrition on top of that if you go out too fast you've got your pacing wrong you may have determined what your pace should be based on physiological testing if you get that wrong then that can affect how your physiological strategy is so all of a sudden all these different things affect your psychological strategy which will happen in the event so it's 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 clearly something that needs to be practiced you have your psychological strategy to help you with your self-talk and your recentering, but that can only work if you get this right, nutrition. It'll only work if you get your pacing right, your physiologi physiology. So it's, it's really, I think that makes this very exciting. It isn't just as just go out there and run as fast as you can. There's so many different factors to take into account and they all kind of lead back to your psychological strategy, which shows just how important it is. Yeah, definitely. It is, yeah, I don't think as a psychologist, you can't just think that that's going to be the one thing that makes a difference. As a, you know, SNC coach, you can't think that that's the only thing that makes a difference. If you don't look at that in, together, I think we're missing a trick. And I think sometimes someone just says, oh, well, we get a, a psychologist in for a couple of sessions, that will sort it out without then understanding maybe actually 
my nutrition plan is completely off. I have not mm. done the reflection on my RPE when that starts to, I've, I've not interpreted my physiological readings well enough, or I'm, I'm only going by, I, I'm not very good at interpreting, understanding my heart rate, or sometimes actually those physiological measurements hold us back because we're so driven by that science that we stop forgetting about our feel and that actually our body can push further mm. than we thought it could. So sometimes running naked without any tools or any kind of watches or anything can be quite helpful to just, you know, we talked about motivation earlier on. Mm. just do it and see how it feels so that running by feel can sometimes be quite nice as well the perfect ability to blend subjective data and objective data yeah i I completely agree i think it's really important you should not be relying on one or the other i think those subjective measurements might give you such important information about overtraining sometimes what we talked about motivation but also sometimes you can do a lot more than you think you're capable of but you you just you're so driven by the 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 objective data that you forget to understand that actually i can push myself further because i've never actually listened to my body i've just listened to that kind of testing data when we think about the lab, they, it's not quite the same. We, we've done, like I remember quite, quite a few years ago, looked into, never been published, but we, we kind of looked into when you're doing a VO2 max test, if you're getting encouragement, you can push yourself in a lot of different ways if you don't have encouragement. So the recommendation is to actually keep situation the same when you're doing VO2 max testing, ideally with no encouragement whatsoever, because this can influence someone's testing results. It's just one very simple illustration. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to finish on discussing the different... So at the moment, we've talked a lot about self-talk, a lot of strategies that you would implement mid-race or mid-run. However, I'm sure there's a lot of athletes that maybe something didn't go quite right during a particular event. They didn't finish or achieve the goals that they wanted to. And then that led to a string of poor performances. They've suddenly got, I don't know, race anxiety because they're worried that that poor performance is going to happen again. What what kind of different strategies would you may utilize if you're a sports psychologist and you were working with someone who has yeah come from a string of poor performances? How would you shape their psychological strategy? Is it is it any different compared to what we've talked about already? Yeah, I think it's... it's... It can be quite a complicated story, isn't it? It's about kind of understanding Mm. where that anxiety comes from, what feeds into that anxiety. We talked a little bit about self-regulation already. Have they engaged in that reflection or do they understand what's going on? And perhaps what we we can look at is what we call challenge and threat states. So some of my research that I've I've done, um, still working on as well, looks into challenge and threat states in athletes. So it's very simplistically said, um, a challenge state is kind of a positive approach to competition, whereas a, a threat state is, is more of a negative approach to competition where you feel that you do not have enough resources to deal with the demands of a situation. And anxiety can definitely feed into that. So when we think about those, those resources required to get yourself into a challenge state, what we, we identified in terms of kind of cognitive psychological resources are self-efficacy, so our self-belief an approach orientation, so hitting that situation head on rather than trying to avoid and run away from it, but also perceived control. So control the controllables and don't focus on those things that you cannot control. So going back to your situation, it's about understanding why they feel that way 
And can you then move them and they, they seem to then perhaps have more of a threat state, so a threat approach to that. So how can you then move that into to a challenge state? And a nice thing when we think about challenge and threat states is that they're states, not traits. So there's something that you can change. So it's about how can you then change that balance from when we think about a demand weighs quite heavy and they, they don't feel they have the, the right amount of resources. How can we shift that? So actually the balance goes that the resources are heavier than the demands and move towards a challenge state. So those are things that are quite a nice visual way of explaining to athletes that, okay, what can we do? Um, make those resources, build on those resources so you can actually manage those demands. So if you feel the demands are really heavy, what can we do to up those resources? What can we do to up that self-efficacy? What can we do to up that controllability? So make sure that you've, you focus on the controllables rather than the uncontrollables. Because quite often what happens when we think about anxiety, it's our focusing on the uncontrollables that can feed into the anxiety. For example, one of your opponents has like a really good stretch of performances living up to what they're doing and that can feed into the anxiety. So that those comparisons and it's also having that approach orientation. So you want to be there and hit that kind of race head on, if you like, rather than trying to just want to stick your head in the sand um, type of approach. So that's quite a nice way of looking at that. And then at the same time, when we think about the challenge state, it's yes, you might experience some negative emotions, typically experience more positive emotions. But when you have those negative emotions like anxiety, you understand that they are there to serve a function. So yes, I feel anxiety, but what that actually shows is that I'm ready for this competition i care about it i've done the preparation i'm ready to go that must be quite comforting knowing that i like the uh, the idea of like challenge state threat state and it sounds like it's very much on a continuum and you may move back and forth on this continuum but you know if you move slightly towards a, a threat state because things haven't been going your way that doesn't really matter because you can do the work and you can you can find the right approach to then move you back towards the the challenge state it isn't just like you are one or the other it just might move a little bit on on that dial but here are some strategies where you can try and make sure that you stay or make sure that dial is pointing most of the time towards that challenge state yeah i think it just gives you a lot more ownership over that process isn't it like it's so easy mm. sometimes for, as, as an athlete to then just like, oh, well, this was all crap and oh, what what am I doing here type thing. But actually to understand that it's a state and a state is something that's changeable and you can take that in your own hands through maybe what it needs is some of your uh, training sessions need adjustment. Maybe they've been too tough. Maybe they've been too easy. Maybe, you know, like lots of things. It's that holistic perspective again, that interdisciplinarity, isn't it? Like, What's going on? Mm. What can we do? And in terms of then challenge and threat states, what can I do psychologically to get myself towards a challenge state through working on my self-efficacy, through working on my perceived control, what's within my control, what's outside? So you can use some self-regulation, like a, what we call metacognition strategy to, to understand and reflect on that. And how can I hit this situation head on rather than just kind of trying to walk away from it, if you like. Um, so not having that mm. avoidance orientation I don't want to be there or I'm afraid of losing or, or those types of things. But actually, no, I'm here. I'm going to go do it are types of things that, that can be quite helpful when we think about tipping the balance in the favour of a challenge state. This is absolutely amazing, Carla. Would we, to be able to, to finish up, could we, do you have like three tips that you would give to 
say a, a runner or a triathlete that's about to start their new season they have some experience within the sport but they you know they want to improve their psychological strategy towards that sport what would be like three general tips you think you'd you'd recommend to everyone that might set them well for the upcoming season but i think the the first thing kind of goes back what we talked about at the start of the uh, of the podcast is make sure that your motivation is of high quality so understand your reasons for doing it set some clear goals for the season that really resonate with you, that you are passionate about and that can keep you ticking along. I think that's that's definitely one of the key things to, to do. The other bit of advice I would say is it's it's so important to focus on the process. So when especially when you're in an event, there's nothing really you can you can change, right? About your training. You've done your training. So being overly worried about all these external factors is not going to help you. So what's really important is that when you're in the event, it's really to focus on you and your task, be very process-oriented, whether that maybe be focusing on your technique or nice, smooth stride or enjoying the environment, whatever it is that works for you there, focusing on the process, I think is, is a second tip. And then I guess the, the third one is really engage in some, some if-then planning. So through a lot of kind of self-regulation and reflection, understand what some potential critical situations might be that you could encounter and think about a plan to, to manage those. And I would like to add to that, it doesn't always have to be negative. So sometimes the example I gave earlier on, we're maybe very much driven about a certain pacing strategy, about running to watch. But actually, when you feel good, that might be that actually the plan is then to adjust upwards and actually doing well. So I think we should also take that positive approach and don't dwell too much on just our mistakes, which I think we sometimes tend to do as human beings, but actually reflect on those positive experiences and use that as fuel to build into your if-then plans where you reflect on a situation where things were tough, but you managed to overcome that. So you've got that tool in your toolbox to build into an if-then plan. So if you feel tired, I know from the past that this particular self-talk statement has worked. That's the one I'm going to use. So if I feel tired, I tell myself, I've done this before. I'm strong. I'll keep going. They are absolutely perfect. And they are three tips that I'm definitely going to be using for any event that I do 2022. We have just moved into 2022. So any event that I'll be doing, a yes. bit of a mix, but definitely with my triathlons and any long distance event that I'm going to, I'm be setting that up in the next few months to make sure that I'm ready for my events anyway. So thank you so much, Carla. That's made it very clear of how we can improve our mindset for endurance performance. Uh, where can people get in contact with you if they want to little learn a little bit more? Have you, have you got, you already described the... Um, the project that you mentioned earlier and we'll definitely put that in the show notes but are you on social media is there, is there any way that people can contact you if they have any questions or anything like that yeah for sure so i'm on twitter carla mayen is my twitter handle i'm working on a website but that might be a month or two before that's out so depending on when you publish this podcast it might be ready it, <laughs> it might, might not be, be a ready. month or two so we'll, so we'll try and time it yes so then it would we'll be carlamayen.com well. hopefully fingers crossed Wicked. so we'll be um, working on that but it's not quite there yet so I would say best way of contact with me, it, contacting me is on my Twitter Carla May and follow me on there that's amazing thank you so much Carla